Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? Welcome to the drawing room, a space for intimate and surprising conversations. I'm Andy Park. When the young daughter of a merchant sets sail on the Batavia to join her father, she's excited by everything around her. The nimble sailors, the giant soldier, the colours and the sounds of the ship. But anyone with a knowledge of the history will know that this story isn't going to end well. The story of the Batavia is one of horror, shipwreck, treachery, murder and enslavement. The Night Ship, a new novel by Jess Kidd, takes the history and crafts it into something new, moving between the distant and recent pasts as the stories of two lonely children connect across the centuries. And Jess is my guest here in the drawing room. Welcome to you. Come on in. Take a seat. Thank you, Andy. How did the Batavia come to be the heart of your book? When did you learn about the ship's history yourself and, and how did you sort of uh, weave that into the part of your own story? Well, I'd already written a historical novel with things in jars, my previous one, which was set in London, Victorian times. And I was casting around for a new um, new idea. And a friend brought me this story and said, you've got to write something on this. There's not a great deal of fiction been written on it, great uh, nonfiction. And so I was immediately hooked um, as soon as I started looking into this story. I mean, as you say, it, it really is, it's, it's one of the greatest um, maritime horror stories really and so but I was I was so intrigued from the very start the characters the setting everything but the difficulty I had was finding a way to tell this story. So do friends often bring you stories I mean it certainly has worked out well here but sometimes it'd be you probably a bit like well thanks but no thanks. <laughs> thanks but no thanks. At times I felt like this about this because it is a really difficult story to tell but yeah they, they usually and I'm always sort of with my ear open for a new story and as I said I, I just love the historical aspect to it as well so I get to do the research which is tremendous fun usually. Talk to me about the two time periods of the book. If you started with the idea of the Batavia, when did you decide to bring uh, part of your story into the recent past? And how did that change sort of the nature of the story you were trying to tell? Well, it's a dual narrative story. So we have two children. So we have Micah, who's on board the Batavia in 1629 when it wrecks off the of the coast of western australia on these in this reefs and this barren set of islands and so i always knew that um i would have one viewpoint on that ship talking about things as they were happening but it was um it was a surprise for me that a second child started emerging and that was really down to the research so as soon as i started looking into the Batavia story, I realised that the follow-up from that point, taking on from the loss of the survivors and all of that things, things that were happening on the island was just as fascinating. The finding of the wreck again, and also this community of crayfishers that would make the island their seasonal home. And some of that was actually bringing out families and children to the island around Easter time, that sort of time. So I was hearing all these oral accounts um, that I heard from from the crayfishers and their family. So it became really apparent that it was 
into the story of this of this mutiny, this shipwreck, this uh, massacre that happened. It was the use of the island in the years following as well that fascinated me. Of course, there's parallels between the two children, Macon and Gill. They're introduced in similar ways. They're both isolated, both have lost their mother, and both have been trained to tell a simple lie, really, about their loss. They do. They come with secrets, and I think I really wanted to mirror um, and have each time inform the other, really. So there is a connection. Their fates are intertwined, and I don't want to give any spoilers. No, of course, of course not. But I think they're also two very separate and distinct characters in their own right, but they share these things. You'll also see some mirroring in the, in the cast of characters. So what I was doing with this book was taking real historical people, people who lived and died in this time, and, and bringing them in as characters. So there's a mixture of fictional and real people there as well. Um, so in both times, they kind of were influenced with the people I heard about. Of course, sort of the mechanism behind the storytelling is that the book alternates chapters between the children with repeated phrases and motifs following between them, whether that's the power of words or or missing fingertips. Tell me about that craft and that repetition. What does it bring to the characters and, and their worlds? I felt like it really opened up those worlds because also as a researcher and as a writer going back to those worlds, I kind of took Gill's position in learning about what happened and trying to imagine what happened. And this book is very much the idea that survival is an act of imagination. And through these two children's eyes, I think you get a wider picture. Um, Also this ongoing way that like the past has a habit of reoccurring in our present. So we have these kind of clear links but I mean in terms of switching narratives it's a bit of a high wire act and I was hoping I'm really so delighted now that I'm getting feedback from readers saying yeah it works we were just as interested in both children Um, but I think because of that kind of element of mirroring there's just hopefully enough but not too much so that you really get a sense of the two separate worlds coming together and you feel that both characters are kind of compelling in their own right Fascinating, you said, uh, you know, imagination as an act of survival. And you can only really do that with children's and children sort of like perspectives and innocence, can't you, despite the sort of horrible reality of their lives? I think so. And and really, when I, as soon as I started learning more about the Batavia story and the aftermath, it felt like it's a very difficult story to tell. And so a child's eye view allowed me to kind of layer in extra elements so there's a lot of folklore in there there's a lot of storytelling and there's an element it's very gritty but there's still an element of magic and play and I think the way that children process trauma is very different to adults as you say there's a kind of different a viewpoint on that so I think that allowed me to really allow them to become brilliant guides it's like through the rabbit hole we're going to follow them and see what they're seeing I mean they're children are apt to be maybe a bit more fluid in terms of their worldview. And so they're not as locked into preconceived ideas. So they're more questioning and opening, open and curious, I suppose. So I felt like these were the ideal guides for us in, in that world. And by layering on that kind of playfulness, 
it felt like I could really explain what was happening um, on another level, I suppose. So you have this dual unfolding of the child's interior world, but also the adult's built exterior world, if that makes sense. Words in your story have power. I mean, saying Batavia, or, or I've probably already gone wrong with my Australian accent, rather than your Batavia uh, in the wrong way could invite trouble or set events in motion. Is that a belief you share as well uh, as a writer? I think so. I mean, I tend to kind of morph a little bit according to the the character that I'm writing at any given point. But as some of this, I was writing and editing uh, during the lockdown um, period. So I was seeing kind of parallels in behavior, like with the stockpiling on the island and the stockpiling in our in our world, in our local shops, everywhere. So I felt that um, I felt like it was a really interesting way into kind of exploring both the good and bad of human nature and the complexities of, of people. And when I build a character, it's no different. They constantly surprise me, as 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 I hope they should, as I hope real people will. Using children as protagonists gives you that sort of innocence or flexibility about reality, if you like, or a certain subjectivity uh, around reality. So does the use of ghosts and the supernatural, which have often been part of your writing. Uh, and they're hinted at here, but not directly involved. Was the danger of man uh, enough of a real threat here? I felt so. I felt so. And I think because I was using a real historical period and real people as well, I had, I had the, I mean, we don't have a huge amount of records um, and archaeology. I mean, the, the archaeology is brilliant. We have the remains of the ship, but I, I really felt that I had to stay quite near to the reality of, of the shipwreck and massacre and mutiny. Um, but also allow that kind of child's point of view to layer on that. And I really found that folklore allowed me to do that. So we have kind of comparable uh, water creatures, not to give too much away. So they're nightmarish. We have the bully back and the uh, bunyip. And so they're within Dutch and Indigenous Australian uh, folklore. So there was this sort of allowed me to have this idea you know, is it reality? Is it the child's imagination? And that's really down to the reader to make up their own minds on that. But I do like to have an element of supernatural. I just feel like it's it's sometimes less about the ghost, but more about who's perceiving the ghost. And also having, again, that link between the past and the present so that there's a resonance, really, of everything that happens on this island. There's a resonance in, in the contemporary time that we can still feel, we can still relate back. To, even though I'm going back such a distance to 1629, it felt very vital that um, I, we would need to be able to relate to these people in some way. I haven't heard the word bunyip in a long time and I tell you what it does take me back and give me sort of heebie-jeebies from when uh, I was a child sort of campfire stories uh, on ABCRN I'm Andy Park Jess Kidd is my guest in the drawing room we're talking about her novel The Night Ship uh, as part of your research for this book Jess you got to travel to the Abraholos Islands tell me about this beautiful and very isolated place given the history behind it well, it is beautiful and isolated, and I was in very good hands. I was taken over by Howie Gray, who's a brilliant Abrolis um, historian, and he's written both fiction and non-fiction on the Batavia. So, um, so I flew out, and I think it was really only when I was there. I couldn't land on Beacon Island where everything happened. It's been designated protected for archaeology, um, but I was able to get a real sense by landing 
standing on a nearby island of the kind of bleakness and the impossibility of survival um, at this point. I mean, my research pre-pandemic took me to the Netherlands. I was on replica ships. I was in the museums. And it really helped me to build up a sort of tangible physical idea of what it was like to be there. And I feel like every time I write a book, I really want to bring the reader with me and kind of immerse them in these worlds. And so by sort of running around replica ships and being on those islands and and looking at these artifacts in the museum it really made a tangible connection because it's such a leap of, of imagination to to get back to that time and also then thinking about the crayfishers who are living on this island in the years to follow uh, which was wonderful there was an ongoing connection and there's things that change and things that stay the same, like the the weather, the um, the the life, the animal life, and the islands themselves um, are just incredible. You say that you uh, did the research pre-lockdown. Does this mean that uh, it would have been impossible during lockdown to to do this book, given the amount of research and the ne- the necessity, as you said, of standing next to the replica of the Batavia uh, and to feel what the sailors would have felt and to sort of smell the wood, so to speak? I think so. For me, I'm that that kind of writer that I think my work comes across as quite visual, quite physical in in that respect that you can get lost in the world. Um, So for me, yes. I mean, if I had had to do it remotely, obviously I would. Um, But one of the wonderful things as well about this research was meeting people who are so passionate um, about this story and about telling this story. And so that were the Museum of Geraldton, the Shipwrecks Museum in Fremantle. So by being there physically and actually talking to people and hearing about this kind of legacy of the Batavia um, was, was really fascinating. And it did really help me uh, build this picture because writing a 17th century ship that some people were on board for months and months and months, uh, it really felt like I had to recreate that pressure cooker environment, that really kind of quite claustrophobic environment for the reader as well. Just the sheer terror of being in the open ocean surrounded by scurvy-ridden, mutinous dogs. It just sounds so terrifying. <laughs> it's amazing that anyone ever got anywhere, given the uh, tensions, if you like, even from a storytelling perspective, that sailors would have had along the way. Absolutely. And I think what's really fascinating about the ship and the island as well is they became like a microcosm for for wider society. And there were tensions before uh, the Batavia even set sail. There were tensions between the captain and the upper merchant with the structure of the ship. So there were two very strong personalities in control. So all the way along, we have these spiraling tensions where the crew members and other passengers are taking the sides, if you like, between these two men and these factions emerge. So even if the ship hadn't wrecked, there was a possibility that she would have sailed into really difficult waters anyway. But I think also this tension, this building tension is replicated on the island in Gill's time later on. So the community there has its own sort of tensions that are being ramped up. So in in both cases, it created this kind of really fascinating way of looking at human behavior under stress, under huge stress. Whereas that feeling that we 
kind of become ourselves when we're put under pressure we reveal you know our real true character in a way so in both cases there's um there's bravery there's compassion there's humanity but there's also in both cases some really terrible behavior i'm always interested in writers who choose a topic that's well known and certainly how the uh, historical uh, factor or the historical reality ended and we certainly know how this story ends so when you're writing a story around history, you have to take that certain path, really, don't you? What did happen? What didn't happen? How did you want to make use of that very definite end? Well, that was a real consideration because I'd I'd written historical uh, fiction, but based on real people, but changed it fictionalized it so obviously I had a foregone conclusion and, and it's it's quite a difficult one um of the children on board we know there were 30 children on board one babes in arms survived and so from the outset it felt pretty bleak but in that I also had certain parameters and again using that sort of child eyes view I could create an imaginative world that kind of felt like it had a a different level to it yes there were kind of certain foregone conclusions but I could also play within those parameters and I think also having that second child uh, with Gil uh, and having hopefully an ongoing story not to give too much away uh, so that you can have a sense that there is a continuation and there is a a real link back um, to that history point and also that idea that some things don't change some things do and and it's a really interesting way to, to, to kind of evaluate our own time by looking back at the past. Jess, you're a few books into your career now and creating ideas for the screen as well. How have things changed since the first novel you published? Is everything a little easier, a little more predictable or a known quantity? Or is it the complete opposite, that you know just how much work goes into historical fiction and that's always a new challenge? I I would hope it would get easier, but I think with each novel, I probably attempt something much harder with each time. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have written this this novel as a a debut, um, but each time I'm sort of testing myself in a a different way or trying out different things. And I think with that, it's it's down to me as a reader as well. I really like to um, find fiction that really speaks to me. And so um, with each each, with each novel, it's a kind of new uh, new beginning, really. And I, I think also I, I do have a fascination with history and that just kind of opens up uh, even more potential stories <laughs> that people might bring to me, friends out there, let me know. <laughs> uh, so, so it's wonderful. And I, I think it also keeps, keeps it quite fresh for me, this, this way that I every time I approach a novel, I feel like I know how to put them together, but really it has to be unique to that story and I have to find the best possible way to tell that story and bring it to life uh, for another reader. Well, Jess, if I ever run into you on the street, I'll be uh, chewing your ear off about a story of bunyips and campfires in uh, folkloric (laughs) ghost stories in Australia. A pleasure to have you as my guest tonight here in the drawing room and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Jess Kidd has been my guest in the drawing room and The Night Ship is out now. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park. For more great conversations, search for The Drawing Room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.